and welcome to NSTA, The Bus Stop. This is the official podcast of the National School Transportation Association. I am Kurt Mackison, Executive Director. And with all the supply chain challenges impacting the school bus industry, we just want to remind you that NSTA has a royalty parts program with IC Bus and Navistar that might be your answer in getting all the parts you need when you need them. For more information on how this cost-saving, all-makes, Part royalty program can help your organization, please reach out to Tom Polzine, our Navistar National Account Manager at 262-374-9800, or you can email him at thomas.polzine, P-O-L-Z-I-N, at navistar.com. All our NSTA royalty partners helps our membership and our organization grow. The more support we can provide to our royalty partners, the stronger our organization becomes. So thank you for your support. Now with us at NSTA The Bus Stop today is a previous guest and a gentleman with a lot of information, great information. He's Dennis Roche. He's co-founder of Burbio, which is a data service that measures school activity. So, Dennis, welcome back to NSTA The Bus Stop. Excited to be back. Well, you know, we had you on a few months ago. I'm sure, you know, most of our listeners are familiar with you. But can you take a minute to briefly give us a reintroduction of of you and your background and then also talk about the Burbio School Opening Tracker? Yeah. So, so Burbio is a school and community events data service. And what we did during COVID is we started building some business intelligence products to supplement all the other things we do around school and community life. And we built last year, but we've been at it now for about 18 months, what we call the school opening tracker. And we have continued to grow that. And we currently have a team of over a dozen people that actively audit 5,000 school districts every week representing over 70% of the U.S. school population for whether they're open or not, as well as all the additional COVID mitigation factors that a school district would have, things like vaccination requirements, testing, masks, things like that. And as a result, and we we provide our information to all sorts of clients, including the federal government. So we've gotten really thorough about keeping track of what's going on um, on a day-to-day basis in schools across the country. And we, we sort of anticipated, I'd have to go back and listen to what I said in October, we sort of anticipated <laughs> there could be a there could a winter increase in disruptions because of the, the nature of COVID. And then, of course, this new variant that appears to spread a lot faster added a whole new wrench to it. So we kind of expected there to be some uncertainty. It's been a little more intense, but there's also been some policy adjustments that will perhaps be uh, addressing them in the next week or two. So, you know, I touched, you touched upon it briefly, but what are some of the trends that you're seeing with the recent surge of the Omicron variant? So, you know, I'll go back to the way we kind of viewed coming into winter. Schools, the school environment is one of a handful of environments. You could argue certainly medical, medical environments, as well as maybe even things like professional and college sports, where there's an enormous amount of testing that goes on. You know, when you go to a supermarket, you don't look around to know whether everyone else may or may not be symptomatic or may or may not have been tested for COVID, but in a school environment, it's very, very 
there's a lot of testing that goes on and a lot of sensitivity to it. And so we, we kind of look at these things as almost like we're a rating agency. We're just going to talk about the logistics of opening schools. And we sort of, we're not a, a health organization or a policy organization. So as we came into to winter, we knew from last year that there'd be an increase in COVID even with the uh, before Omicron because of the fact that in the winter in the Northeast and the Midwest and the parts of the West, you're going to see just an increase in its flu season essentially. And then with all the testing that goes on in schools, you're going to see an increase in disruptions. So what happened with Omicron obviously is, is there is a, it's spreading really, really quickly. And the, but at the same time, obviously, it's, it's more mild. So it's kind of a different dynamic around how to measure it. So what happened now is we, and literally the timing, in some ways, the timing was actually pretty, it was probably the best possible timing, given how difficult it was, because in the Northeast, things started to peak right up before the holiday. So you had this one week break where schools were not in session and because of Christmas break. And which gave them a little bit of time to put testing in place as well as to kind of be ready for when students return. And also to arguably, it was during that period where Omicron was spreading and probably would have spread anyway, even if schools were in session. So you had this situation where we knew coming out of break, where the, a lot of people were coming back to schools, there was a lot of testing in place. And then you have rules around quarantining, which are there for a reason right now where we are not comfortable uh, with a teacher standing in front of a classroom who's got COVID or a bus driver who's got COVID. So in other words, if someone tests co- positive for COVID, they're not supposed to be working. And, you know, for us, the be- bellwether was Yonkers, New York, which is a district that, that, that did a pretty good job of staying open last year. They were hybrid a lot of the year, their schools, and then they became fully in person. They work really hard. They did testing just before Christmas, uh, just before the new year, it was like December 28th. They did testing. They tested 800 parents and uh, t- uh, children and staff and had a 25% positive rate. And this was, you know, a, a five days before school was supposed to open. So needless to say, they went virtual because you can't, you can't operate a school with 25% of your staff not there. And so that's kind of what we saw coming, which is all these places that were doing a lot of testing. And they were testing. They were, really, the results that mattered was a few days before school. Because someone who's got COVID, you know, before Christmas doesn't matter as much because they'll be over it by first week in January. So, so all of these results were coming in the, the weekend before school. And you had places in the country where uh, COVID rates were very, very high. Uh, and so it didn't surprise us. That there was disruption. And that's what we saw this week. So last week, the week that just ended, uh, the week of January 3rd, by January 7th, you had over 5,000 schools that were hit with either as little as a single day, and in, in a lot of cases, a full week of virtual learning. In a couple of cases, cases they were closed as they tried to make adjustments. And so, and, and, and in the grand scheme of things, that's actually not a big percentage of the country because your your listeners know there's there's roughly a hundred thousand schools, so it's five a little five percent of the schools in the country were affected. It probably what that probably signals is that a lot of the schools that are open though are struggling with staff. And we certainly know that from all the auditing we do. We see superintendents talking about the staff shortages that they're managing. We see all the job descript- job postings that are up for bus drivers and substitutes and things like that. So it's a very stressful period, even for the schools that are open. And it's really triggered by the threat of COVID and the way it's currently being managed. 
I, I will add one thing at the risk of talking for too long. I think that what you saw the <laughs> CDC do recently is they made an adjustment to quarantine to, to essentially take it down to five days. And that's a big deal, right? Because the difference between five days and 10 days for a lot of the districts that were following the CDC guidelines is going to result in a lot of staff being able to return to the classroom or to the buses sooner to be able to have schools operate. So that's a material adjustment that is really going to start to be seen. And it's one of these things where it's going to be hard to read. It's going to be hard to know what would have happened had they not done it, but the effect will be felt in a week or two as the many, many people who are currently in quarantine will be able to come out, will be eligible to come out sooner. Dennis, when we talked, and I don't think it was the last time we talked, I think it was uh, probably spring of last year, we did talk about how the regional differences in how this is being managed really manifested itself over the course of the pandemic. So the Sun Belt was different than the West Coast, was different than the Midwest, and then, of course, the Northeast which I consider, you know, New England down through I-95, probably all the way to Washington, D.C., you know, is managing things a different way. Is, is that something that we're still seeing? So are the schools in the Northeast kind of driving a certain agenda that's not necessarily replicated in, say, the Sun Belt or the West Coast? Or how do you see that breaking down? Well, it is a very, very local situation. Certainly in the Sun Belt. Now, I think in parts of the Sun Belt, COVID rates right now are not as high as they are in the Northeast. They certainly have sort of locked in in the Sun Belt a less aggressive approach to COVID, meaning they don't quarantine at nearly the levels they were quarantining in, the, in, in other parts of the country. So they, they, but they went through their own disruptions uh, in August and September. I think when you look at the Northeast, even within the Northeast, there are differences. In Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, it's actually pretty hard to close a district. Uh, yeah, Massachusetts has a law in the books that says basically you can't. Connecticut has a regulation they issued at the end of December, uh, like a week and a half ago, that basically said virtual learning does not count full stop. So, so there are states in the Northeast that have put regulations in place to, ensure, to basically ensure in-person learning. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't help a district with a lot of disruption, but it, it kind of, it forces it by, by pushing that, uh, uh, by taking that off the table, it creates a dynamic where schools are going to stay more open. New Jersey, on the other hand, clearly doesn't have that. And uh, because they, their school districts have been closing rather widely. Um, New York doesn't have that strict a regulation from what we've been able to find, but their school districts in general are relatively open. You've got Mount Vernon shut for two weeks and Yonkers and New Rochelle both took a week off. So, so it is within, within the Northeast, it's very layered. And then Maryland is, is had a very, uh, more disruption. I, w- I would actually say that, that when you get down to it, there's sort of like a, it's like the, 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 the goalposts have been moved and there were districts states like Massachusetts and Connecticut that had much more open schools than New Jersey did a year ago. They're relatively open right now. But then below that bar, if you will, you've got New Jersey and Maryland, which were two of the bottom five states in the country last year in terms of open schools. They're the ones who are currently suffering the most, at least not suffering, that's the right word, but they're the ones who are, who are struggling a little harder to stay open. And some of it is a, is, is a, it, it, it's a complex set of dynamics. I will flip it and say California really sort of did a fast forward, 
they are very, very few schools are closing in California. And this goes back to August. So they have a very strict, they have a set of guidelines in place that seem to be yielding very, very few school closures. And we'll see if that, ha- see if that continues for the next week or two because uh, their COVID rates may be a little bit behind parts of the Northeast and the Midwest in terms of when they're going to peak. But California in general has been much closer to sort of Massachusetts and Connecticut, I would say, than it has been to sort of New Jersey and Maryland. So it's very layered. There's a lot of different things going on. From day one, I've kind of said that the, the governors and the State Department of Education had a very big role in whether schools were opening. And last year, there's places that opened schools. You saw governors getting very sort of adversarial with some of the local, uh, other local constituencies insisting on open schools. And then finally in the spring, you saw more of that in parts of the country. There's not as much adversarial stuff going on now, but you still have that same dynamic. The the state, at the state level, they need to lead on this issue. Yeah. And and you also mentioned it, you know, earlier with the the change in, you, you know, one thing like the change in the CDC, you know, guidelines for quarantine, I, I think one of the things we've seen overall is, uh, and, and you did mention this, moving goalposts, which I think adds to the layer of confusion, not just for you know school administration, but really for parents and and, and students, you know, as well. So, uh, have you seen anything that's been effective in 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 that realm of mitigation strategies? Uh, because the objective, obviously, is to get all students back in in-person learning modules. But have you seen, you know, where, you know, a state or a district has utilized uh, mitigation strategies that, you know, really make this a temporary pause? Because I think everyone's fear is is that once we close down, it's just been become so difficult then to reopen for in-person learning. So I think there's a couple of variables. And and it's a continuum, and it, it can be difficult to talk about it without sounding like you're endorsing one thing or the other. But but what right, happened is, right. in the in the areas of the country that were most likely to close schools, so let's just take places that really don't close schools at all off the table for the purpose of this discussion. Masking was used as a form of reducing quarantines uh, as a health and safety protocol uh, last uh, uh, from 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 the get go. So some of the states that I was talking about, they require masks. And if you're wearing a mask, you don't need to quarantine if you're around someone who's got COVID, full stop. And then they layer in vaccination requirements and things like that. So so, so those are two areas of let's not, let's stop with quarantining so many kids. The CDC came out with a study about three weeks ago around this test to stay, where they basically said that people can test if they're a close contact, that could be an approach. And one of the things they said is that 90, they found in LA, and there was another district that they, they looked at as well, I believe it was Kansas City, 98% of the students that were put in quarantine were, were not even uh, COVID positive. And keep in mind, we've been quarantining, we've been quarantining at a 10 to 1 ratio in large parts of the country for most of the last academic year. So it's a pretty dramatic statement to say we don't need to quarantine at these levels. So the second thing is, in addition to just not even sending people to quarantine, the second thing is they're shortening quarantine and they're kind of even tightening up who's even in that discussion. So those are the levers that get used, use, the use of masks as a, as a tool. And then as you go into other parts of the country that 
don't that are less likely to close schools at all, it comes down to very simple: if you're sick, if you're sick, stay home. Otherwise, we gotcha. just you know they, they just right. don't do they don't do as much testing, and they don't nobody. As I said, it's and and, and when you talk about the level of the issue with COVID, and you saw a bit of that with the new CDC guidelines, where it says after five days, if you're not feeling symptoms, you could you know get back into it. Right. So so this this issue of Hey, let's start to let's start to manage this. There, there does seem to be certain states where they're like, if you're sick, stay home. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to be running around hunting this particular uh, malady any different than we treated other ones. And that's and that's kind of the other let's call it side of the equation. Does it make sense? Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good term because I I actually umpire baseball and we call it hunting strikes. So in other words. We're, we're hunting for, for strikes and then everything else is a ball. And I think that that's an appropriate uh, analogy, you know, with this, are, are we hunting for those positive COVID tests? Because, you know, if I ask you this, Dennis, if we took a hundred people and tested them, you know, for COVID right now, how many of those hundred are coming back, you know, positive? Well, and I, and I think that for, for us, and this is at some point we kind of we've been able to stay out of the more fraught discussion about how to manage the pandemic. But yes, the issue I cited earlier, which is that if you're going to test, do mass testing of asymptomatic, and you're going to catch a lot of asymptomatic cases, and you have a mild, right. you know, you have a mild variant that is not really necessarily transmission is is not, uh, you know, uh, you've got. The vaccines and the, the, the boosters don't necessarily stop transmission. So, and so at some point, yes, you do have this burst. Are you are you are you are you creating disruptions where you don't necessarily need to? And that and that is a that is a discussion that we are not like we don't participate in that discussion. We observe right. the various. Oh, understood. I will, yeah, I will say the CDC guidelines by moving back to five days are a big. Uh, step. I, I want to listen. The way I would say it, the way I feel comfortable saying it, is is over the last year and a half, there's been we have read as we and we're like a rating agency, right? But we'll read regulations where a stakeholder or someone will go, we want open schools, and then they will argue for constraints that you can't possibly open schools regularly. And I'd be like, you're <laughs> just saying that, like you know, what I mean, it was like the, I mean the most extreme and obvious case is the six feet distancing thing. Back in the beginning, right. like we want open schools, right. we want open schools, and we're going to keep them six feet apart. I'm like, you can't do both. Well, COVID's dangerous. I get that. I get that. I'm not saying you shouldn't do six feet. Well, I'm just trying to tell you. Yeah. So we would do a bit of that. So what you're sort of p- poking at is that in places with very high transmission currently, how are you going to manage this so you can keep schools open? Because if you if you use mitigation factors, mitigation approaches that were used as recently as three or four months ago, you may not. You know, you can't say you're going to open schools and then you're going to quarantine everyone for two weeks, right? That's, you know, you're not opening schools if you do that. So I think I think you're seeing some of that is kind of the way we would view it is that, and there was a bunch of changes, and we probably spoke about this earlier last spring. They got, you know, you went from six feet to three feet. I just talked about masks and quarantine rules changing and things like that. So they have made adjustments. I can't imagine it would, but it doesn't change the day-to-day stress that your members must be feeling. I, I look at... When I read some of these notes, it's just crazy what the I mean, to know whether anyone's going to be able to show up to drive a bus to pick up the kids, and then you got to I can't imagine how difficult that must be because yeah, you know, it yeah, comes no. down positive. So yeah, no, it's it's uh, 
for sure a very challenging environment, emphasis on challenging. And, and Dennis, you give so much uh, great information and insight uh, as well. Let, let me just ask you a, a final couple questions. One is that you, you know, pointed at uh, Yonkers, New York, you know, previously as a, a district that, you, you know, you thought did a lot to, you know, maintain the in-person learning status. Are there other examples, um, you know, out there that uh, maybe people can refer to as as far as, uh, you know, districts do you, you think have really left no stone unturned? Well, I think the list is probably so long right now because I think almost every district is is going through it that I don't think it would be fair of me to kind of it'll be a little too random for me to make those observations. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I certainly can point at places that were that had a lot of closures last year, a lot of in-person closures like California, like Illinois, that have had less of them in parts uh, like like Massachusetts that have really tightened it up. I mean, they've gone from having Oregon places that were like literally virtual, mostly virtual through March of last year. You had entire states, Virginia is another one. They were entirely virtual most of last year. When I say the majority of last year. And now you have almost exclusively in person with transmission rates that are much higher than they were at any point last year. So I think you're seeing a lot of that. Uh, it's, It's happening everywhere. I think there was a there is a bipartisan, if you will, or universal acknowledgement of you need to get schools back to, to as normal as possible and at minimum get students in the school, in the classroom learning because of the, 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 the problems it causes for ch- children and child development. And, and there's on the education side, there's a whole bunch of literature starting to come out. We, Burbio's data has been a part of some of the studies around learning loss. They basically look at districts that were open versus those that weren't and the types of districts. And, and it, it's, it's really a problem and everyone acknowledges it on all sides of the equation. So everybody's kind of working pretty hard to make it happen. Yeah. You know, one reason why I look forward to, to looking at your emails each week is, is because I think you just do report, you know, the data and, and, you know, let's leave that to other folks to kind of interpret it. And, and if folks want to be able to find out more information about Burbio or subscribe to your mailing list, Dennis, you know, how can they, how can they find out more and how can they reach you and your company? So if you type Burbio School Tracker into Google, you will get to our school tracker page and you will see a place to sign up for our email list. And we generally do it once a week. We've done it a little more frequently in the last uh, two weeks because of what's happening. And my email is Dennis at Burbio, Dennis with two N's at Burbio.com. So you can just email me directly. We do have two, we, we do have three data sets that we work with clients on. One is we have all this underlying tracker data. So you can look at behavior going back to August, 2020. We also measure ESSER three spending and we see a lot of transportation dollars being allocated. We have thousands of districts as to what they're going to spend from ESSER three, which was $122 billion of uh, spending authorized in March. And then we also have this massive database of school calendars. So we look at school start dates and end dates, which are shifting around wildly because of COVID. So we have a couple of different business intelligence products that we work with clients on across the industry. So that's my sales pitch. 
But at the minimum, we we don't we don't we don't pitch our email subscribers too hard because then they would unsubscribe. <laughs> so uh, so just uh, we like to keep them. So uh, you can go to Burbio School Tracker and sign up. And yeah, so you said our we're, we're a rating agency. I mean, there's at some point we 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 don't we really try and be careful about not getting involved in the in the. Uh, making arguments for one policy or the other, because we feel like that would distort what we are trying to do, which is just look at what's exactly happening. And the rating agency piece comes in because, you know, depending on the regulations, the school's more likely to be able to do something. And that's kind of where we look at the regulations and comment on what's going to result in uh, school operations being disrupted or not. Yeah. Well, once again, Dennis, thanks for jumping on the the podcast with us. Once again, at NSTA, the bus stop this week, Dennis Roche, she's co-founder of Burbio. That's a data service that measures school activity. Dennis, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, And as I mentioned to the listeners, a lot of great information you guys provide. So keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. Good luck for the semester.